0: Good evening and welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and top instructors go to share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by the French Lick Resort, Ben Hogan Golf, the PGA Tour Superstore, the Salt Creek Golf Retreat, Made Golf, the Bobby Jones Apparel Company, and Super Speed Golf. Now here's your host... Chris Mascaro.
1: Good evening, folks. I hope you're doing really well tonight. And uh, it's a big night for us here on Next on the T. We are celebrating 200 episodes tonight. Can you imagine that? Four and a half years have gone by since our first episode. And here we are, four and a half years later, and we are on number 200. And we're going to celebrate in grand style tonight because uh, I get the honor of having three really wonderful guests and uh, two guys that have uh, meant a lot to us over the last several years and we're going to have a brand new guest first time ever on the show tonight that we hope we'll be talking about for years to come. First up with me is going to be one of my all-time favorite guests Bob Friend Jr. Bob has played out on the web.com tour, the PGA Tour, and the Champions Tour. If you love baseball you're going to remember his father as one of the pitchers that helped the Pittsburgh Pirates win the 1960 World Series over the New York Yankees. Bob first joined me all the way back on episode number three. That was back in April of 2014. He joined me that night along with uh, Tony Jacklin. So he's meant a great deal to me over the years tonight. We'll talk about his experiences playing out on tour, particularly the 2016 Senior Open Championship that he played in, which was held at Carnoustie, which was obviously the site of this year's Open Championship. So we'll hear about his experience there, plus get his thoughts on uh, the difference between – he played, you know, back, you know, obviously in the day with a lot of golf balls, right? When you compare the ballada to the golf ball that guys are playing out there with now, how do they compare? What is the real difference? So we'll talk about that in a whole lot more when Bob joins me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'm going to get a return visit from 2013 Senior Open Champion Mark Wiebe. Talk Mark about you know his memories, also of playing at Carnoustie. He played there in the 2010 Senior Open Championship. So we'll talk about that plus. The differences in strategy, right? When you're playing a Lynx golf course versus the courses, you know, here, or, you know, we have Lynx golf courses in the States, obviously, as well. But when you're looking at the the, the Lynx golf courses over in Scotland and Ireland versus the the courses that we play here, is it a different strategy? And if so, how, right? Is it, a, we, we always hear about it's a more along the ground game over there than it is here. We're in an in the air game here and they're on the ground. So talk about different strategies and how you adjust to that and practice for it and all those sorts of things. Plus, we'll get a, a couple of playing lessons from Mark when he joins me a little bit later on in this half hour. Then we'll round out tonight's show with a visit from Class A PGA professional Greg Ducharme. You hear Greg every morning, you know, Monday through Friday, on with Michael Breen on his show, A New Breed of Golf, on SiriusXM's PGA channel. I'll talk with Greg about how he ended up getting hooked up with Michael, plus some of the topics they've discussed lately. And one of those is, should players be play, uh, paid paid? you know, regardless of whether they make the cut or not. It's a fascinating conversation they've been having over the last several days. I want to get Greg's thoughts on that. Maybe we'll talk to Bob and and Mark a little bit about that as well. But, you know, when you really step back and you think about it, right, when the guys show up there, they're playing in a pro-am. Some of them are doing clinics, you know, during the week prior to uh, the tournament starting. And then they're playing Thursday, Friday, and we know if you don't make the cut, don't get paid. So is that the right thing to do, right? You know, one of the things that Michael has talked about on their show is, you know, these guys are entertainers on on some level, right? We're we're going out there on Thursday and Friday to to watch them, you know, in the first couple of rounds. So we're getting some entertainment from those guys and walking around and uh, and watching them play. So should they get paid for that? And that's a, that's a fascinating topic. I want to get Greg's thoughts on that, plus get some playing lessons from him as well. And he'll join me about 45 minutes from now. So a lot more great stories and information coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the T. Te- Thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me over the next hour or so. But before we get started, I want to remind you about our good friend Matthew Lawrence and his show Backspin Golf, which airs Sunday mornings from 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time. It's my regular Sunday, 8.03 a.m. T-Time. It's broadcast on WLXG ESPN Radio AM 1300 up in Lexington, Kentucky. You can stream it live by going online to WLXG.com or do what I did, which is download the WLXG app. Matthew does such an outstanding job. It's a great way to start your Sunday mornings. I can't recommend the show highly enough. And, again, it's called Backspin Golf, and check it out on WLXG.com or by downloading the WLXG app. Matthew's equally fantastic twin brother, Mitchell, has also got a great show that marries golf and travel. It's called Talking Golf Getaways, which you can find online at GolfNewsNet.com or over on Audioboom or, really, anywhere you consume your podcast. He and his co-host, Darren Bunch, travel all over the world and let you know about great places to play, stay, and even eat while you're there. Again, it's called Talking Golf Getaways, and you can stream it online by going to golfnewsnet.com or over on Audio Boom. And, folks, as you know, we are sponsored by the French Lick Resort. Let's hear a word from our friend Steve Rondonero about the things they've got going on up there.
0: Play Legendary Golf at French Lick Resort, the only place in
2: the country where you can play courses by two Hall of Fame designers on the same property. Our Pete Dye and Donald Ross courses offer two very different challenges. Experience them both and save with our Hall of Fame package. Our two historic hotels are unique as well. Cap it off with a fun visit to the French Lick Casino. Check us out online at FrenchLick.com. Bring a group and save even more. Play Legendary Golf this season at French Lick Resort.
1: Yeah, check them out online, folks, at FrenchLick.com to see for yourself what a wonderful place it is and to book your stay as well. I also want to give a shout-out to our friends at the Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company. Folks, if you haven't hit Ben Hogan irons since the 80s or 90s, do yourself a favor. Get a demo iron from either their Fort Worth PTX or New Edge irons and go out on the range and compare it to what you have now. All Ben Hogan irons and wedges are handcrafted one at a time in their Fort Worth, Texas factory. No mass production, no shortcuts. Now you can order custom-made irons, wedges, and hybrids at BenHoganGolf.com. They'll build clubs to your specification and, best of all, charge you a fraction of the typical retail price. Check out their complete line of forged irons, wedges, utility irons, hybrids, bags, and accessories by going online to BenHoganGolf.com. We're also proud to be partnering with Russ Holden and the folks over at Caddy for a Cure, One of the most unique opportunities in the world of professional golf is available to you through Caddy for a Cure. Spend a day inside the ropes with one of the world's best players as their caddy. It's a fantastic way to have the time of your life while supporting our wounded service members and Fanconi Anemia. You're going to get to walk side-by-side with your tour player experiencing professional golf as an insider. In addition to the amazing experience you're going to have, you're going to get a fantastic giftware package from Caddy for a Cure, which includes Under Armour logoed apparel and an eyewear package. A, a tour grade caddy bib suitable for autographs and framing, a tin cup ball marking gift, chef's cut real jerky, and professional photographs of your day. They have spots open right now to caddy for Rory McElroy, Brooks Kepka, Justin Thomas, Jordan Speed, Jason Day, Justin Rose, and several other players as well. Go online to caddyforacure.com to find out more information. That's C A D D Y F O R A C U R E.com. com.
2: This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA TOUR Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA TOUR Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATOURSUPERSTORE.COM. Now back to Chris and more of the show.
1: All right, now I'm going to play for you that interview I did with uh, Mr. Gary Player earlier this year. Like I said at the top, Mr. Player has been gracious enough to join me over the last several years during Masters Week. And uh, it's always one of the highlights of the year. So sit back, take a listen to our conversation from earlier this year during Masters Week. Now back with me and making his sixth appearance on the French Lick Resort guest line is Mr. Gary Player. You all know Mr. Player has won nine major championships, three Masters, three Open championships, two PGA championships, and one U.S. Open. He was the third player to win the modern-day Grand Slam at the age of 29. He came after Ben Hogan and Gene Sarazen. Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods would later join him. As a golf architect, he has over 325 design projects on five different continents. He's authored or co-authored 36 golf books. He played in 52 consecutive Masters tournaments, which is a record. At the age of 80, he made a hole-in-one in in the Masters Par 3 contest, his fourth ace in that event, which is also a Masters record, and I am honored to have him back with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hello, Mr. Player. Thanks for coming back on the show again this year.
0: Very well, Chris. Okay. Let her rip. (laughs) All
1: right. Well, Mr. Player, last year I asked you about the longevity that you and Mr. Nicholas had with uh, winning majors versus the short time span that Mr. Palmer had winning his. And, you know, you won majors over a span of 20 years. Mr. Nicholas did it over 25 years, while Mr. Palmer only did it over a six-year period of time. When, When people talk about... You know, who are the greatest players of all time, are. Does the longevity that you had winning majors get overlooked?
0: Longevity, you know, if you buy a motor car and it only lasts two years, uh, you don't think too much of it. So, you know, you buy a BMW or a Mercedes or something like that, and it lasts a long time because the Germans are so good. You feel good. And I think people, a man like Sam Snead, it's debatable whether he isn't the greatest player that ever lived. It's debatable. But obviously, uh, I'm inclined to think that Jack Nicklaus has been. Tiger Woods, had he not encountered his difficulties in life, he would have turned out to be the best. But you cannot talk about ifs and ands. Uh, But longevity, to me, when I'm judging the best players that ever lived, I certainly, that's one thing I really take into consideration. Yes.
1: And... Talking about some of the players from back in your era, you know, people don't bother. Today, everything in society is about what happened right now, and everyone's sort of stuck on Tiger Woods, but people don't bother to read about Ben Hogan and Sam Snead, Byron Nelson, or even Bobby Jones, And, and I was curious to get your thoughts, Mr. Player. Where do you think Bobby Jones ranks, not only for winning the Grand Slam in 1930, but for the 285 that he shot at St. Andrews in the 27 Open Championship?
0: I think Bobby Jones, it's quite possible. It's quite possible. It's always difficult to compare people with different areas. In fact, it's impossible. But Bobby Jones conceivably could have been the best player that ever lived. His golf swing, I was looking at it the other day on a video. It is absolutely perfect. But remember, when he played, they didn't even change the cups during the tournament. And when he played, they raked the bunkers with their feet. And the spike marks were all over the green. And they had no grooves on the clubs. And they went by grey on bus or a old car to a golf tournament. <laughs> Bobby Jones had one of the most incredible golf swings. And yet, if he went to some of the teachers of today, they change his swing. Just as Tiger Woods, the start of Tiger Woods's Woods' problem was when he won the U.S. Open by 15 shots. Not five, 15. And the next week, he's having a lesson from somebody. And then a little while later, he's having another lesson from somebody else. And those were very good teachers. But those two guys couldn't break. They couldn't break 80 at Augusta off the back tees. No chance. So why he never went? But first of all, why did he even bother to go for a lesson? Had he never been to another lesson after he won the US Open by 15 shots, he would have been down as the greatest player that ever lived and he would have won at least 20 majors, I think. But ifs and ands do not count. It's what goes down on the paper, how you judge people. Not by whether he was charismatic, an icon, this or that, this or that. It's what goes down on the paper. And uh, Bobby Jones had a phenomenal record, phenomenal swing. He and Sam Sneed swung the club very similar manner. And uh, I'm such a big fan of both of theirs. But, you know, Nicholas has got the most majors. I think I can sit here and say I have the best world record. By that, I mean around the world, South Africa, Australia, Brazil, Japan, China, South Africa, England, everywhere around the world. I I achieved more than anybody else did around the world, which was my dream to do that, because I'd had dinner with President Eisenhower as a young man who I admired greatly. And he said, you know, we are America is a global society. And uh I thought, well, I've got to be a global player. If you're going to talk about being one of the best players in the world, you've got to do that. Byron Nelson never went down as one of my best players in the world because he didn't win tournaments all over the world, and he only played for a very young age, and he won all his tournaments when Hogan and Sneed were at war. So he never went down as one of my uh, really superstars. I think to be judged as a superstar, you've got to win, in my humble opinion, six majors. He only won five, so there are lots of players that won more majors than uh, than Byron Nelson. However, Sam Sneed and Ben Hogan, they went over to play in the British Open, won it. Sam Sneed was a tremendous play, won tournaments all over the world, and Hogan went one time and won. So I admired that tremendously. But you must remember about Ben Hogan and Sam Sneed. In their primes, they had to go to war for five years. Imagine killing Jack Nicklaus or Tiger Woods in their prime that they had to go to war for five years i mean you know you can't conceive that they wouldn't have won anywhere near the majors they'd won if ben hogan he went to war for five years he did have an automobile accident so in his prime he never played in 28 majors think about that it's like rod laver rod laver the tennis player he was not allowed as a professional to play in amateur tournaments in other words he was not allowed to play in the grand slam of today He won two Grand Slams and was barred from playing in the Grand Slam events for five years. How good would he have been if he was not barred? So there are a lot of things to consider, aren't there?
1: Indeed. And, and Mr. Player, you're the first one to win the career grand, Grand Slam on both tours, the regular PGA Tour and now the Champions Tour. Where do you think that feat ranks amongst golf accomplishments?
0: I think the greatest achievement I ever had in my career is definitely winning the senior Grand Slam, not the regular Grand Slam. There are five of us that won the regular Grand Slam. But they all try to win the senior Grand Slam, and I'm the only one that's done it. And the reason that I did it, Chris, because at 50, I was almost in equal shape as I was when I was 25. And I'm now 82, and I still still average 72, 10 shots better than my age. Some days I shoot 69, 66, other days I shoot 73, but I beat my age every single day. I must have done it, well, I must have done it for at least 2,000, maybe 2,000 times now. I don't know. So, uh, and I'm keeping in shape. I'm still, the other day I pushed 380 pounds with my legs. I run the treadmill at max. I do thousands of sit-ups. And uh, as I say, I run the treadmill at max. So and I try and watch what I eat. I try and rest well. So golf is an amazing game. I won a tournament on the on the American on this American tour at sixty three years of age. You know, at other sports you finished at thirty average. Golf has been very kind to me. I'm very grateful for what golf has done for me. I never forget to say a prayer every day of my life to say thank you.
1: Mr. Player, two of my favorite golf books are both ones that you've written. Don't Choke and Gary Player's Black Book. I think Don't Choke should be required reading, particularly for junior players, because in it you talk about the power of the mind. Talk about why it's so important, not only in this game, but in life to have a strong mind.
0: I wish more young guys who started out to play golf and parents would buy that book for these juniors because it really is, really, if I may say, a very good book to help them in their lives. And we... (laughs) You know, I saw a man like Tom Weisskopf, who's a better golfer than Jack Nicklaus, but he only won one major on each tour. He often said to me he hated golf, and it was a shame because this man was phenomenal. But I've seen so many good players in my life. They play well, and they don't play as well as they should do. Guys haven't reached the heights that they should. They haven't won as many majors as they should, according to the ability the mind, we haven't scratched the surface of the mind. And one of the things that really frustrates me, mainly on the Golf Channel, the golf pros, they, the commentators are telling you how bad, basically, heavy weight trading is. And here's Rory McIlroy. Look at what he's doing today. He's playing phenomenal golf. Look at Tiger Woods. He played phenomenal golf when he was the most pumped up at weight trading you ever saw in your life. I mean, I don't know where they get this from. Dustin Johnson, I mean, all these pros. I've been lifting weights for 65 years, and if I never, I wouldn't be playing well. And they are actually putting people off by doing weights. Even Johnny Miller said on the television the other day, oh, Rory would have done much better had he not lifted these heavy weights. How much better can the man done? He's won three majors already. He's got a chance to win the Grand Slam this week. What are they talking about? Every single athlete in the world almost does weights today. Even people that are li- doing chess. I mean, athletes, sprinters, they're all lifting weights. Did you see uh, Usain Bolt? Do you watch these guys? Gay, all these guys, how they lift weights. All these athletes today are lifting. I mean, I just it just really disappoints me when I see them. And young guys are being put off. You know that Rory McIlroy lifts almost 300 pounds? And you saw Tiger, man, alive. And Tiger said to me the other night in the locker room, you know, I've had three back operations. If I never did these weight training, then I wouldn't be playing today. So it's very disappointing for me to hear these commentators talking about a subject that, quite honestly, they don't do anything.
1: And, Mr. Player, as you mentioned, Tom Weisskopf, and he, along with Lee Trevino, never won at Augusta National, though Weisskopf finished second four times. And it appears to me, and you would know better because you were there, you know, for some reason it seemed like Lee Trevino convinced himself that he couldn't win at Augusta national and Weisskopf did seem like there was a confidence or something preventing him from getting over the hump there. Is, is that what it was? Was it the mind, something going on internally within their minds or was it something else that prevented them from being uh, a master champion?
0: No question about Lee Trevino, because the best striker of a ball that I ever saw was Ben Hogan. And Lee Trevino is in the top three best I've ever seen at striking a ball. Now, striking a ball isn't scoring, but from tea to green, I never saw anybody, very few people better than Trevita. He spoke himself out of winning Augusta. And I played practice rounds with him when he came to Augusta, and he was gone. I, I, knew, I, I, I was surprised he ever made the cut because he just spoke himself out of it. And it was just ridiculous because he was so good. No, I, you know, we haven't scratched the surface of the mind, of the body. And the other thing is, we haven't scratched the mind of eating correctly. You know that in the greatest country in the world, the United States of America, not even 3% of people exercise and eat properly. Can you imagine? So this is an important fact in, eat, in, in professional athletes. You've got to learn to eat properly. I mean, sugar is one of the greatest detriments to an athlete. Uh, there's so many things you've got to lay off. You've got to watch the way you eat. You can't be eating high fat, high sugars, too many carbs, lack of, it, lack of laughter, lack of a happy marriage. All these things go to be making a champion. And we're still in our infancy. We're going to see people come out and play golf here one day. I'm telling you. We're going to see things that you've never seen in your life before. We're going to see a LeBron James play golf, a Michael Jordan They're going to hit the ball 420 yards. Last week, or the week before, uh, Bubba Watson hit a drive 489 yards. 489 yards. They're hitting seven irons and eight irons to the par five here at Augusta. What is going to happen? They've got to slow the ball down. People are spending lots of money lengthening the golf courses. We're running out of water in the world. Let me give you an example. My brother was the leading conservationist in the world. You go to a restaurant, you sit down, they put water in your glass, whether you want it or not. They don't even ask you. You drink it and some don't drink it. The ones who do drink it, they turn the back and the waiter fills the glass again. Everybody leaves the restaurant. Probably, well, probably, I don't know, 250 million glasses of water a day remain on the table. And that's for three meals a time. And then they take the glass and they throw the water down the drain and then they wash the glass with water again so for every glass of water four glasses are being consumed basically and really the world is running out of water big time
1: mr player just a couple more before we let you go and this is the 40th anniversary of your victory back in 1978 and there was something coincidental about the number 42 that year it was the 42nd master's tournament you were 42 years of age and you shot 42 over the last 12 holes including 30 on the back nine coming from seven strokes back to overtake Hubert Green Tom Watson and Rod Funseth that we, that year became the oldest master champion at the time where does that rank amongst your wins
0: well to come back in uh, 30 at Augusta and very easily could have been very very easily could have been 27 because on three occasions I was within an eighth of the inch of, uh, a gang in the hole. And I'm uh, luckily enough. I didn't shoot 27 because if I did, they would have never invited me back. But, uh, <laughs> no, that was, uh, that was a, a, a very a gratifying tournament. And the one thing I've always been, Chris, I've always been very grateful for all my accomplishments. Very grateful indeed. And, uh, so, uh, anytime you win here, it's tough to win. It's a tough golf course. And, uh, You know, I get so tired, Chris, of hearing these commentators. All they talk about, how far this man hits the ball. What a beautiful swing. But nothing to do with a beautiful swing. Long hitting is not the answer. Look at Jordan's feet. He really isn't all that good from tee to green. But my goodness me, he's a wonderful young man. Great for the game. Well behaved. And is one of the greatest players that ever lived. From a hundred yards in. And that's what wins tournaments. Can't people see this? You see it on television. The other day I watched him play. He must have missed eight greens. Plus minus. And chips and putts. Chips and putts. bunker shots and putts. Puts it on the green and putts. Look at the British Open. I mean this guy is a genius with a putter. And what wins golf tournaments? That's what wins. You cannot win. You cannot win a golf tournament without putting brilliantly young guys practice your putting practice your chipping practice your bunker shot practice your wedges, because that's what wins
1: i've heard you talk about how the most difficult thing to do in putting is to see the putter hit the name of the golf ball versus wanting to watch the ball roll into the hole how could we do a better job of not being so anxious to see the ball go in the hole and instead focus on making a good strike and getting the putter face square to the target
0: Well, it's a little thing called practice. There's no shortcut to success in golf, particularly as a young man today. You better think twice about being a professional because there are two million. And in China, all over Asia, these guys are out practicing the Western kids because the Western kids have television, a car, air conditioning, three meals a day, food, mothers taking them to school in a car. And these other countries, they don't even have one of those things. And so they're hungry. Look at, this, look at the South Korea. How they beating the American women at playing golf? I never thought I'd ever see that. I didn't think it was possible. They are the best players in the world because they're hungry. You see, you're not in, this entitlement business is a bad thing. Nobody's entitled to anything, Chris. You've got to work hard. You've got to work your butt off in life to be successful. And you've got to exercise. And you've got to work on the mind. There are a lot of things to becoming a champion golfer. Just hitting the ball is, is nothing.
1: One last one, Mr. Player. And I had Ben Wright on the show with me a couple of nights ago. And I asked him about what it was like to interact with Clifford Roberts. And he talked about how much he respected Mr. Roberts, but he also feared him. And I've heard that a lot of people from that era talk about Mr. Roberts and how much they respected him, how tough he was, but also how much they sort of feared him as well. What was your relationship like with Mr. Roberts?
0: extremely good he was always very kind to me i never feared him at all i don't think i've ever feared anybody in my life i had great respect for him and he ran a tournament with great discipline and um, no i had a lot of respect for him so what do you think this weekend does rory come back and win it
1: or is this patrick reed's time
0: let me tell you something patrick reed is swinging the club so well. He's a bulldog. He's tough. He, he's good at every aspect of the game. He's outstanding. Now, there's nothing that he's not good at. But Rory, picked Rory at the beginning of the week, and I picked two guys, Patrick Reed and Rory. So, so far, so good. But there's a long way to go. But, uh, you know, Rory, uh, he has the best golf swing in the world today. I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal. He needs this tournament to win the Grand Slam. Tiger Woods, I wanted to see do very well, and he has done well. This week wasn't that great, but you think how long he's been off and the difficulties that he encountered.
1: I think he's done
0: very well, and he's making a good comeback so far. And then you find the young Chinaman, Tong Li. I'm just hoping he does well because if he can do well, China with 1.4 billion people, and they start, oh, they win medals and the... Olympic Games, they're winning tournaments all over the world. It'll increase, and you've got to think of golf manufacturers, uh, golf courses being built. It's good for the industry, so uh, I'd like to see him as well. So I always like to see somebody do well who's going to enhance the game.
1: Well, Mr. Player, thank you so much for being generous with your time again this year and coming back on the show. It's always a, such a thrill for me to be able to spend some time with you. I hope we get the privilege of doing it again real soon.
0: Did you watch Jack and I on the long driving competition? I did. Congratulations. Well, it's a great thrill because I exercise like crazy. And uh, I always pull Jack's leg and we have a lot of fun. And I out drove him. I said, Jack, don't feel bad. You out drove me for 40 years. I said, it's my (laughs) turn for the 40. (laughs) I'm I'm sitting here watching Rory McIlroy. He is a weightlifting champion. And he's hitting the ball. He hit the drive today on number 11, 360 yards. Plus the fact that he has the most beautiful swing. My, listen to you, young guys. You learn to exercise properly. Don't exercise incorrectly and practice your short game. And have good manners. Have good manners. And when somebody asks you how you are, say, fine, thank you, sir. How are you? Not just good, important to do that, and to actually have respect for their mothers and fathers, and at the same time, when somebody beats you, look him in the eye and say, well done, man.
1: That's, all. that's outstanding advice, Mr. Player. I can't, I can't thank you enough for your time and for being here. You're certainly one of my favorite people on the planet, and I tell you what, you talk about eating and those sorts of things. When, I'm, when I go to eat something that I know I shouldn't, I actually hear your voice in my head saying, don't eat that, that's poison.
0: <laughs> all right, God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you, Mr. Player. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: That was my interview from earlier this year right around Masters uh, Masters weekend, Masters Saturday, as a matter of fact, with Gary Player. It, uh, it was a very special time for me. It's always wonderful to get to spend some time with him. I look forward to it every year, and I'm looking forward to it already for when he joins me again next year. All right, before I get to my next guest, Mark Wiebe, I want to give a shout-out to a couple of our sponsors. First, I have to tell you how excited I am about the new weapon I have in my golf bag. For the last several months now, I've been playing with a new M4 driver from TaylorMade Golf, and if you haven't tried their new twist-face technology, you're missing out. I don't know about you, but I don't hit it in the center of the face every single time. After studying hundreds of thousands of swings from pros and amateurs alike, TaylorMade designed their new drivers to help protect us from our mishits and give a straighter distance. So whether your miss is on the low heel or the high toe, Twistface helps bring the ball back to center, keeping the distance that we want and finding the fairway more often. I'm hitting more fairway, fairways than I ever have. The new drivers are also the choices of some pretty good golfers you might recognize. Twistface is played by Tiger Woods, Rory McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, Jason Day, John Rahman, Justin Rose, to name just a few in dominating the top 10 out on tour. If you haven't tried Twist Face, go hit it and get fit. It's in their new M3 and M4 drivers and only from TaylorMade. I also want to give a shout-out to our friends at Superspeed Golf. Now used by over half the tour players in the world, Superspeed Golf is the fastest and most effective way to increase your swing speed. Three eight-minute training sessions per week are all you need to see a 5% increase in swing speed. With sets of you know, golfers for all ages, right? From you know little juniors all the way up to you and me. And you get a year of included video instruction as well. Superspeed offers a complete solution to help you start bombing it off the tee. Visit them online at superspeedgolf.com and pick up your set today. All right, now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line to help me celebrate our 200th episode tonight is 2013 Senior Open Champion and now one of the top instructors in the game, and that's Mark Weeby. Let me remind you about Mark's background. He's from Seaside, Oregon, and grew up in Escondido, California, played his college golf first at Palomar Junior College and then transferred to San Jose State. While at Palomar, he was the individual medalist at the 1977 California Amateur, and he won the 1977 Idaho Amateur as well. He was named second-team All-American in 1979 at San Jose State. That season, he and Don Levin won the Silverado Invitational in Napa, California. He turned pro in 1980 and started on the PGA Tour in 1983. His first career win came at the 1985 Anheuser-Busch Classic, and he beat John Mahaffey with a birdie on the first playoff hole. Won again in the following year, 1986, at the Hardys Golf Classic by one shot over Kurt Byron, thanks to a, a, a birdie on 17 during the final round. Mark matched Bobby Watkins' record for being the youngest winner on the Champions Tour at 50 years and 10 days old when he won the SAS Championship. 2013, he won the Senior Open Championship at Royal Birkdale, defeated Bernard Longer on the fifth playoff hole to capture that senior major after a final round 66. Later in 2013, he captured the Pacific Links Hawaii Championship again in a playoff over Corey Pavin. In all, he's won eight times as a professional, twice on the PGA Tour, five times on the Champions Tour, plus the 1986 Colorado Open, and he's now the Director of Instruction at San Jose Country Club in San Jose, California. And I'm thrilled he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Mark, thanks for coming back on the show.
2: Hey Chris. Boy, thanks so much for those kind
1: words. So Mark, catch catch us up. How are things been this summer out in San Jose?
2: Well, it's been hot, I can tell you that. Um <laughs> after being in Denver, you know, we had our hot times there for lived there for thirty years and it got hot, but it, it eventually cooled off at night. It's been hot this summer, but uh you know things things are moving right along, um as far as golf goes. Our our oldest daughter uh, had a baby three weeks ago, so
1: wow! Congratulations. He,
2: yeah, so uh, it's been pretty exciting, obviously, and uh, and not much sleep for my daughter and her husband, but um, they're both doctors, so they don't sleep that much anyway. They'll get over it. Wow. Uh, but yeah, so uh, and then the golf, then uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to see it go a little faster, but it's. It's trending in the right direction, Um, being involved with uh, many more juniors uh, as time goes by. And probably if if I had to choose one of my favorite things to do, it's to help the kids and uh, not only with swing, but just thoughts and, you know, the mental side of the game and uh, what to think, when to think, how to think type of stuff. So uh, as far as that goes, it's been a, a nice, busy, hot summer.
1: And Mark, when you when you're working with the junior players, right? I mean, I, I gotta wonder: did, are they aware of your of your past and the things that you accomplished, particularly being a senior Open champion? Do they realize who Mark Wiebe is and who they get the opportunity to to you know get instruction from?
2: Well, um, I think some of them do only because their parents are either watched me on TV um, way long ago because the. The parents of these kids are way younger than I am. So, um, Or there's the Internet. People can look you up um, and see what uh, what you did on tour and stuff like that. But in most cases, um, I kid with some of my juniors because when they look at me sometimes and they're not sure if I know what I'm talking about, I have to remind them, hey, you know, I do know what I'm talking about. And I did have <laughs> success with this. And I know you don't know me. And I, I, I can't use. My peers as examples ever in my teaching because they give me that same blank stare when I say, "You know, let's work on our tempos. Let's feel more like Ben Crenshaw." And they look at me like I, they have no idea who Ben Crenshaw is. So I, I have <laughs> wow. to know. I have, but I have exactly. Wow, is my first thought, <laughs> and then uh, then I have to I have to use the nowadays guys like you know Jordan Spieth, you know. Jordan speech putting tempo is, or, but it has to be current. So obviously now I have to watch more golf on TV to keep up on things. <laughs> Maybe
1: you should bring yeah, the senior good. Claret jug out there and put it on a, a, a chair or something. And when they look at you, funny, you got to point to that, like, you know, yeah, that, that's why.
2: Well, well I, it is funny because believe me, I have showed a number of them pictures and, I also have a couple of pictures some buddies took of all my trophies gathered up on a big table. And uh, I showed them that, too, because I'm trying to, as half-jokingly, but um, I'm trying to say, listen, I do know what I'm talking about. I know I'm a old, chubby, white-haired guy, but uh, <laughs> believe it or not, believe it or not, I was I was good at one time. I was pretty good. <laughs> so we joke, we joke quite a bit uh, about all that stuff.
1: Mark, switching gears a little bit, Um, earlier this summer, we lost Bruce Litsky, a guy that you competed against for years, and I kind of wanted to get some thoughts. What do you remember about uh, playing alongside Bruce?
2: Oh, my gosh. Uh, A ton. Um, He was, I think, first and foremost, he was uh, idolized by the by the youngsters, I'm not that much younger than he is. I think six or seven years, but because not just from his golfing ability, it's because he didn't even have a hard time juggling family and and golf for a living. He seemed to master it. And for those of us who had kids and wanted to be, you know, more – baseball games and uh, dance recitals and soccer games and all the stuff. uh, Bruce was kind of our idol for that. He was a great leader, uh, you know. So we thought about him, I think, more in – I have anyway uh, in that regard. And, by the way, he was really a good golfer. So, uh, you know, I think that uh, the things I take away are – You know, he was, a. as far as golf goes, I liked the left to right shot. Uh, He was the king of the left to right shot, so I idolized him in our golfing abilities. And then, uh, like I said, the family, how he handled his family was a great role model.
1: Mark, I want to get your memories as well from playing at Carnoustie. I know in the Senior Open Championship back in 2010 you played played there at that golf course. What what are your memories of Carnoustie?
2: Well, you know, they call it Carnoustie and you know, I the first my first round uh in the first major I played over there, I think I shot 69. I played early in the morning. I had a great tea time. There was no wind. And I really did think, well, God, you know, you can shoot low here. I, I was kind of bummed with, I think I shot 69. And I, I thought, wow, I really didn't score as well as I played. I played pretty good. I think I can shoot low. And then I remember the next day, I was the last group off the tee, the second round. Uh, so I went like at 230 or something like that. And the wind blew not super hard, but it blew, and I shot 80 as quick as you could shoot an 80 um, and have the biggest piece of humble pie I've ever had. I couldn't – all I remember was making bogey after bogey after bogey after bogey, and I thought, okay, now I get it. This is what they're saying when they call it Karnatsky. Um, So I, I think it's a golf course. Definitely the more you play it, the better chances you have having a nice score. Uh, for for some of these girls over there, I think they can whip into Carnoustie and just go ahead and just dominate. it. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I, I guess you could. that could happen, but uh, I just thought it was a, it, it becomes intimidating with the elements um, to where you're not really sure. <laughs> you're just not really sure. You think you're hitting good shots, but the greens move and your ball misses them and you know, all of a sudden, bunkers are in play that weren't in play on the prior day. And uh, just like all those courses over there, they're, they're kind of all like that. All of a sudden, you go, oh, I didn't know that was in play until um, till it's in play.
1: And, Mark, your your senior Open championship victory was just five short years ago. They, just had the, the, the senior championship not that long ago. This year was at St. Andrews, and, and I believe it was the first time they played the senior open there. But uh, curious, to get, did you ever get an opportunity to play the old course?
2: You know, I, I never did. And I there's a thing about, um, and that's changed now because I'm not playing professionally anymore, but there's a thing about going to a course when you know there's a chance to get in on that course during a tournament. Uh, I felt the same way about the Masters. You know, I never really wanted to play Augusta just to go play it. I wanted to play it in the Masters. So, just in that same regard, I really wanted to play St. Andrews in in a tournament, not just go over there and play sometime just to, because it's there. I wanted it to be special, and uh, I would have. It just broke my heart to not go this year. I just was. It was aching. I just wanted to be. You know, I just can't do it anymore so it, there's a part of me that no, understands the other part of me is like couldn't I just go over there a little bit you know because of <laughs> what it means and how what a spiritual golf course and golf spiritual place that whole place that area is uh, uh, but I, I, I just think I never did I never did and I did it on purpose and then here it is on the schedule and then I can't play so it just wasn't meant to be, I guess.
1: And, Mark, when you when you go over to Ireland or Scotland and you're going to play a link-style golf course and you're playing in the conditions over there, how, how do you get prepared for that? Because I, I have to imagine the strategy for how you're playing those courses is very different. And when you're playing courses, you know, regularly over here, I know we have links courses, you know, here in the States as well, but for the most part, it's a, it's a different style of game. How do you practice and get prepped for that?
2: Well, I think, you know, to tell you the truth, I think you, as a golfer, I think you practice and prep your whole life for stuff like that, because there's you, like you said, it's a link style golf over there. uh, And unless you're playing on that, you're not going to be very versed at that. So, you know, I think you, you take all the times when you were a kid and you played in the rain and the wind and uh, junior golf and practice and all your experiences throughout your life of all the shots you hit because you're going to need every one of them when you go over there. Uh, I think it's more of a lifelong prep. Uh, for me, it was. I grew up on some uneven golf courses. They weren't links, but a lot of uneven lies when I was a kid. and. You know, not all the golf courses over there are flat. And, you know, believe it or not, you hit it on some mounds, even though you don't want to. Uh, and you're hitting a lot of different lies uh, out of whiskey grass and uh, with elements that, you know, unless you play in tournaments, like with those elements, it's hard to really practice that. So, boy, um, well, you're really calling all your resources from your entire life uh, when you go over there and by the way you do kind of want to play it like you're a kid anyway um, because you play your better your best golf that way so uh, I think it's uh, you know it's without a doubt it's my favorite golf to play that's kind of to me no knock on what we do over here but that's real golf over there and then we we play a form of over here
1: Mark, I want to get uh, your thoughts on the mental side of the game. For, for you personally and when you're talking to your junior golfers, when you're in the heat of the battle coming down the stretch and you have an opportunity to win, how do you stay in the moment and not let your mind wander, get ahead of yourself, you know, thinking about, hey, I could win this golf tournament or let the nerves sort of get into what you're doing and watching, you know, what's going on around you. How do you stay in the moment and how do you teach your your students to stay in that moment so you stay focused and you still have the opportunity to win and not get distracted?
2: Yeah, um, you know, that that's hard to teach. Um, I think you you develop a, your own way to deal with that by being in that position time after time after time uh, until you realize you don't have to jump through any hoops. There's no magic tricks. It's just golf. Uh, but we all think it, it all of a sudden becomes more important now because we have a chance to win. So now every I better be serious and take this. You know I better really think about what I'm doing. And you uh, you have to trial and error a lot. And you you know and as much as those times hurt uh, when you don't succeed, I think that's your uh, that's your growth. Is in those times um, of how to deal with things, and it uh, you know, because you if, if you're a kid, then has never been on that stage, and you don't really know, and you know, nowadays there's a lot of kids that are almost programmed so much that they don't they don't even think about stuff like that, but then that becomes you're, you're playing robot golf, so. You know, I talk about this a lot and I tell the kids the same thing. I said, you know, you gotta be there and once you taste that, you realize that tastes pretty good. I wanna go back again. And then the more you go back and the more you feel it and the more you whether you succeed or or don't at that time, you start building all of this experience as at a young age. So the more you can be in that last group and feel those jitters and deal with the, the little devil saying, Hey, you know, all you got to do is par in. Um, you know, you kind of, you kind of learn how to, uh, how to talk to that voice, I guess, actually. So um, I don't think there's any secret to that. I mean, you can't just go out and not feel it. Cause the coolest thing about being in a tournament and getting that where you are kind of scared, kind of nervous, but, super excited, that's that feeling that I think, I mean, I always played for that. That's what drove me to want to succeed because I loved it. I loved having a shot at testing my skills and what I've prepared my life for. I love having a chance to measure that and see if how good am I. You know, I've grinded my rear end off. Now we're going to see because the hard part's the prep the easy part to the playing, prepping yourself to get to that moment and then getting in that moment. Is so ex- exciting. So I'm, I try to share all of that with my juniors, uh, for sure, because they don't have much data going on in there. You know, they haven't played that long and they've, they're new or, you know, they're, they're, you know, right now they're, they're happy they're shooting a lot of 73s and 4s and they're trying to figure out how to shoot in the 60s and um, that's all part of it is you know and Gary Player uh, I've heard him on your show you know he mentioned some things that it's so right on it's so right on it's you know just being in the moment and and looking someone in the eye if you don't win and and realizing that although it hurts you learn you learn something you know and uh, putting that together as building blocks along the way, and then you you try to build that big wall of success.
1: Mark, before we let you go, remind our listeners again about what you're doing now and how they can uh, get in touch with you and follow you uh, either online or on social media.
2: Well, that's great. Thank you. Uh, yep, yeah, I'm at uh, San Jose Country Club. I am the Director of Instruction, so I'm uh, I'm there a lot and teach a lot and try to get programs together and um and i don't do only juniors and i don't do only really great golfers i i have a man one of my favorite lessons that i give weekly is to a man that had a stroke just under a year ago and uh his goal is to break a hundred and we go out every thursday in the morning and grind it out and he's getting better so i i teach just about anybody that wants to learn um my website is markwebegolf.com, um, and on there will be my email, which is uh, mwebegolf at gmail.com, but that will be on my website. And, uh, and if you feel like you're in the area and you'd like to book a lesson, you can also do that online through my website. You just hit the button Book, book Now, and you can book your own lesson, just like going to the dentist, but hopefully not. <laughs> um and yeah that's it that's it I'm just you know I like I like sharing what I've learned and I've learned from the best so kind of fun stuff
1: well Mark I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and, and help me celebrate our 200th episode of the show it's uh it's always getting it's always great getting to spend some time with you you're such you're such a fun guy and i love your stories and i love your insights and and now you're a fantastic teacher of the game as well so thank you very much for for being here and like i say taking time out of your night to come back on the show
2: chris you're great thank you very much and happy 200th episode that's very no, I cool i appreciate you Thank you, you Mark.
1: It. Look forward to catching up with you hopefully again real soon in between now and then. Congratulations to your daughter and your son-in-law, and uh, and congratulations to you and your wife on your new grandchild. Hope everything uh, is, is well with him, and uh look forward to catching up with you soon.
2: Awesome, Chris. Thanks so much.
1: Take care, Mark. All right. That is the great Mark Wiebe. And uh, look forward to catching up with, again uh, with Mark really soon. And I tell you what, those kids that get to, you know, have him as their instructor. And, that, and that's what, you know, talking to Mark, right, if, if looking at me funny, right? Like, you know, are you sure you know what you're talking about? I'd have that, that senior open claret jug sitting right there on a bench, on a stump, on a chair, whatever it was. And anytime time someone sort of raised an eyebrow, I'd point right to that. Don't ask questions. I, I, I was pretty good. There's why. To think that Mark's name is etched on that claret jug with so many legends of the game, it's going to be there forever, right? You know, he mentioned Gary Player. Gary Player, good friend of ours, and his his name's on there three times, and Mark's name's right there with him. So that's a huge honor, and those kids uh, are very honored to have Mark as their instructor. Look forward to catching up with with him soon. All right, before I get to my next guest, Greg Ducharme, I want to remind you about one of our sponsors, our good friends over at Parbar. Parbar Golf is focused on better nutrition for better golf. PAR Bar is the first of its kind energy bar developed specifically for golf based on nutritional science that provides sustained, even energy that we golfers need, right? Now the company has introduced un- a unique hydration product called Par, bar- PAR Water that instantly converts water into an electrolyte drink. Only one gram of sugar and it's all natural. PAR Water is a cap that's filled. You know, that fits right on top of most water bottles within the cap is an electrolyte powder. It's simple to use, no mess. Snap it on the mouth of the bottle, press the top of the cap down, and shake. That's it. The powder instantly dissolves and the water is now converted into an electrolyte drink that replaces the salt that we all lose when we're out there sweating. Studies by the American Institute of Biotechnology have shown that 12% loss in distance and a 90% loss in accuracy happens even if we're mildly dehydrated. Drink par water before, during, and after your round. It's all natural, tastes great, comes in lemon and mango flavors. You can buy, buy par bars and par water online at parbargolf.com and at many pro shops around the country. All right, now joining me here to help us continue to celebrate our 200th episode on the French Lick Resort guest line is Class A teaching professional Greg Ducharme. Let me give you a little bit of background on Greg. He is from Rexford, New York, which isn't far from Schenectady and Albany. He, uh, he graduated from Coastal Carolina University with a degree in professional golf management. He's a Class A professional teaching at the Michael Breed Golf Academy at Trump Golf Links at, at Ferry Point, which is just outside of New York City. You can hear him on Michael Breed's show, A New Breed of Golf, every morning from Monday through Friday from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM. I listen every morning on my way to work, and I'm very excited that Greg is taking some time to join me here tonight on Next on the T. Hey, Greg, thanks for coming on the show.
3: Hey, thanks for having me. I I, I just found out, I, I, congratulations on, on your 200th show. Um, what a what an honor it is to have, to have me join you on there. So thanks for having I, me.
1: Absolutely. Thank you. So, Greg, I want to start off our time with you tonight by going back to when you were a kid, because being from that part of the country, I have to imagine there were a lot of competing sports for your attention, including hockey. Talk about growing up in uh, the different sports that you played, and when golf entered your life.
3: Absolutely. So, uh, golf was a kind of a, it, uh, honestly, it was a thing that I wasn't very interested in. I, I had very little to even no interest in golf, and the competing sport you mentioned, ice hockey, I played that from the age of five all the way until. Uh, I graduated high school. I was 18 years old when when I I hung up the gates there, and I decided to go to college down in South Carolina, and that was kind of a a turning point for me. I decided hockey wasn't going to take me very far. I could play golf for a a whole lot longer, and I thought it would be um, better for me. I didn't start playing golf until I was a sophomore in high school, so I was playing ice hockey. I loved it. I was playing um, at you know, I was playing travel hockey, and God bless my parents. So we were playing 80-game seasons, and that was just in the wintertime. In the summertime, I was doing camps, and I was um, playing on travel teams, just basically tournament teams. And I played for a team from New Jersey, living in Albany. That's a long way. But in the summertime, there's no practice. It was just basically we would travel to Toronto and Quebec City and all over the place, Connecticut and um uh, New Hampshire and Marlboro, mass. We were traveling all over the place for all these hockey tournaments. And I thought golf was kind of lame. Honestly, I I was not into it. I thought it was boring. I thought it was slow. I thought it was a sport for old men. And all of a sudden there was in the fall time, my dad and I would watch football. One of the, one of the, my favorite things to do. And every once in a while he would flip over to the golf on Sunday. And it's like, dad, it's football time. What are we, why are we, (laughs) <laughs> flipping over to golf, and all of a sudden this guy wearing red uh wearing a red shirt and and a Nike swoosh is fist pumping, and the crowds are enormous, and there's just so many people and everybody is going nuts and just like so many others um uh, my age, Tiger Woods is the guy that brought me to the game, and all of a sudden just just at the flip of an uh of an instant, the wink of an eye all of a sudden i think i I think of golf as being a cool game. And so I, I go and I start, uh, I I get a set of clubs. I start hitting some balls. I realized, wow, this is really difficult and I'm not very good. And I didn't like that very much. So, you know, some of my buddies who also played hockey were taking golf lessons and getting better and we'd go out and play and they kept beating me. And that wasn't something that was going to work for me. So I took one lesson. Um, and I, I took one lesson and I learned grip, I learned ball position and I just I learned a couple of basic drills on how to swing the club and and how to transfer your weight and it was basically two drills that I learned. I still remember them to this day. And from there I learned how to hit a ball and I learned how to make some consistent contact and get it in the air and really the rest is history. Now at this point I go to work every day and you know I had one of our our coworkers at the academy Andrew Losi he he comment that he uh he said basically what i do is i go to work in the morning and i talk about golf on a, a radio show and then i go down to the academy and i teach other people how to play golf and then uh, my fiance bridie took a, a video of me i was in the living room late one night just making golf swings because and and he saw it and said man you when you get home at night you're making you're, you're working on your own game in the living room and that's basically what my life has turned into from hockey all the way until now where i basically i wake up and i go to sleep with golf on my mind and uh all of my activities so it's been a, it's been a really fun ride so far
1: so to to that point right you, a kid from upstate new york ends up going to coastal carolina for professional golf management right? is that a that, yep. Boy, I, just, I loved it. I fell in love with this game as a sophomore because that's only a couple of years right before you're graduating, and now you're going to go off and you're going to do your thing in college. Did it? Did the bug yep. hit hard? And, and then that was just it. Now I'm going to be a teacher of this game. How did? How did all of that transpire?
3: It, so it hit really hard, first of all. But I have a a friend of mine who I also played hockey with and played golf with. He kind of brought me into the game, and uh, his name's Kevin Shalansker and. Kevin, don't you know? You don't have to try to spell that. Don't worry. But he he basically <laughs> said, you know, there's this thing called the PGM program at Co- and the school Coastal Carolina, which was in Myrtle Beach. And I had happened to vacation in Myrtle Beach every once in a while as a as a kid growing up. So I, I was familiar with Myrtle Beach. I loved going down there. I thought it was the coolest place. Uh, so I thought it was a really good fit. And the cool thing about the uh, the PGM program down there, which you know, also happened to be a nice selling point to, to my mother and father was, hey, you know, when you go and do this, this isn't a singular, you're not just going down there for golf management. You end up getting a business degree. My degree was in marketing and you have a concentration in PGM. So you basically, you're going down there for a business school. All of your core classes are in our business classes and your electives are in the golf world. So one of my electives one year was uh, was food and beverage. One year, there was a there was a swing, a, a golf swing kind of a, a teaching course. There was a golf course architecture and design course, and these are your electives. These are things that you might take instead of, um, I don't know, some other random elective that that you may take. They were all golf related, and I thought that was pretty cool. You got a membership to a golf course, and basically the only, all you had to do was prove your handicap. And it's since changed. I was in. The last class of of what's called um, PGM 1.0, which is named 1.0 only because 2.0 came out the year after. And when 2.0 came out, you basically had to take your PAT, which is a playing ability test. You had to take that before you could start taking your bookwork, um, before you could start taking your test in all the individual fields that you have to go through. Which I don't need to go into detail about all that. But basically, when when I got there. You had to have a golf professional sign off on the fact that you were an eight handicap or better. Um, and at the time, in those two years when I really first started playing, uh, which was really three summers, it was really three summers of play. I had gotten pretty good fairly fast. I, I The first year in the fall when I had w- with high school golf, I basically was shooting in the mid 50s for nine holes and I was on the team, and then my next year I was a junior, and I was still on the JV team, and I was basically shooting by that time in the low 40s. So in one year, I had kind of jumped 10 shots. Now, when you're shooting 55 for nine holes, if you improve at all, it's going to be, there's are significant, you know, you improve your tee shot, and you go from hitting a big slice into the woods to hitting a shot that can get into the fairway, you're going to save 10 shots fairly easily so then I got into the low 40s and then the next year I started getting to where I could play a little bit and I made that this is now my third season on the golf team I made the varsity team and now I could shoot in the you know around a couple over par I wasn't shooting under par or anything but I I could keep it around par and at that point it starts getting much more difficult to improve Um, because now you know it's not so much well I can't get the ball in play and I can't Chip and I, I don't know how to hit certain shots. Now it's well. How am I going to hit all these shots a little bit better? How am I going to hit them a little more consistently? Um And so uh, it hit me hard. I got I got pretty good, fairly fast. Um And again, it was fairly easy for me. Hand-eye coordination wasn't necessarily an issue. It was it wasn't th- those weren't the difficult things. The, the difficult things for me were just knowing what to do, which I'm still learning today. Uh, which is one of the coolest parts about my job, but. Basically, that's kind of how this all came to be. And going down there, I had a couple of advantages. One, I love to play golf. And my, my family, my parents knew that. They, they thought they supported it. They thought it was a really good thing and uh, a good thing to try with a nice backing of, hey, uh, you know, you're going down there for a business school. This isn't just purely golf. So, um, so I think that was a really nice selling point for the whole
1: thing. And Greg, when I was doing some research on you, I found an article online written by Richie Phillips back in May of 2012. In the article, he wrote, I think Greg had a GPS device implanted in his head at birth. He just looks out there. He sets his eyes on the pin and whammo. There it goes. Is that is that one of your strengths? Do you have a good strong feel for what the right distance is, or are you more? Or is it more referring to you're an aim and shoot? There's not a whole lot of messing around and thinking about things. Select the club, set up, boom, there there the ball goes.
3: Well, you know, back in 2012, that was a different time in my life. I I hadn't quite started getting into. I knew I'd love to play. I knew I knew the game. I, that was kind of when I was still a hockey player, and and since then. I've started to as I've gotten into the teaching world. I've now started working with Michael Breed, and I started watching and learning about all these new aspects of the swing. So my golf game has kind of gone through a number of phases. There was the first phase around that time, 2012, might have been a little bit pat. You know, I was starting to learn a little bit then, but basically I was just being fairly athletic, a guy that loved to play and a guy that was really a, a hockey player turned golf. And I, I guess that's where it comes from. It was just kind of a, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to stand up here. I'm going to look at my target. I'm going to hit it to my target because I'm an athlete and that's what athletes do. We hit our target. Um, and, and as I started to work with Michael and started to learn some of the techniques and the the, the ways to improve uh, the ways to be consistent, the ways that a swing really should be, my game sort of changed. And, and honestly, it, for the first couple of years, it went through a really rough patch. Cause I, I was watching, I, I spent my first uh, summer after college, just watching Michael give every lesson and all he, he was giving lessons to all kinds of different people. He's giving lessons to tour pros. He's giving lessons to high, you know, 25 and above handicaps, complete beginners and everything in between. So wh- when you're, as young and as um, uh, a person like, like the way that I was, I had no idea. I, I had no knowledge. I was just a complete sponge. And I tried all of these things in my own game. And I quickly found out that, you know, as that article pointed out, that just look, aim, shoot kind of mentality. Well, when you start thinking about the techniques of your swing, that goes away and it goes away pretty quick. And I got to a point, I didn't really know what I was doing with my, with my game for for a while and it took me probably 2 years to come for, to to get out of that and realize learn how to understand hey listen just cuz somebody else needs to work on this that's different than than my game and it, it, that was a real learning curve for me but back in 2012 um that was probably after around in an outing and and you know they probably seen me play a couple of times because i i um you know, I, back in high school, I played in a high school tournament that I ended up winning, and, and I made a hole-in-one, and there were some articles written about that, and it, the cool thing about the hole-in-one that I made was it was on the final hole of a tournament, and I ended up winning that tournament by one shot um, Wow! on that hole-in-one, and that gives you a little bit of a, a GPS sort of nickname. And, um, it was probably a, a fluke round more than anything. It's the only hole in one I've ever made. It's also the only tournament that I've ever won. Um, and the two of them coming in in contact together, the way they did was kind of a cool thing, but around my hometown, people kind of knew my, uh, my golf game based on one shot that I ever really hit. And it was all that I ever really did, especially in that area. <laughs> At that point, and I think that's a little bit of where that nickname kind of comes, or or that story kind of comes from.
1: And Greg, you come from a very athletic family. Your sister Lexi is a good athlete. Talk about uh, talk about her. What a tremendous gymnast! I read she is.
3: Yeah, my my younger sister Alexa, we, everybody calls her Lexi. She was a, a gymnast, similar to the way that I played hockey. She was and think about what my parents have have gone through with myself traveling to all these hockey games as I did and my sister Alexa traveling all over the all over the place for these gymnastics meets and there's a little bit of a difference between going to a gymnastics meet to watch and going to a hockey game to watch a hockey game there's some you know there's constant motion there's excitement every 45 seconds or so a line is changing and I'm on and off the ice on and off the ice You go to watch a gymnastics meet, and it probably takes six hours. And Alexa is competing on there for, you know, she is actually on the floor or on the the bars or on a balance beam for a total of, you know, it, it might be five minutes, and five minutes might be high. So you're going there cheering on the team for a very, very small amount of time to watch her compete. But what I will say about that is the amount of time and practice that they put in in between meets, was is incredible. And I mean, they're in the gym for hours upon end every day and they don't take a break. And it really has a, you know, it it was her, her gymnastics friends were always her best friends because they spent so much time together. She would get out of school and, and boy, she would get the best grade. She always made me look like such a bad student. She would get the best grade and, and she's in the gym way more than I'm at hockey practice. Hockey practice is an hour and a half long. She's at the gym for three hours, and she comes home and gets her homework done and gets to sleep, and she's like this perfect child. And all of a sudden, she goes off to college, and she goes to SUNY Brockport in Rochester, New York. And all of that hard work she put in and all of that skill that she developed led them to, in her freshman year, a national championship. And so she's got a a national championship ring on her finger, something I do not have, and will never acquire for any of my skills. So she's always got the athletic leg up on me. She always has. She always will. Um, And, you know, another thing about Alexa, her her hard work has always paid off. She, um, not only in athletics, but in academics as well. She ended up going to uh, Long Island University um, in Brooklyn for grad school after Brockport, and she got her doctorate. She's a physical therapist now. So. Um, very exciting for her. She's got her boards coming up in, um, in October and she's on her way to, to a, a great exciting
1: career. Ah, good for her. That's great stuff. Yep. Very exciting. So Greg, to finish connecting the dots in your career, how do you go from coastal Carolina to working with Michael Breed?
3: Well, there's, it's a great question. And what I would say is it's a lot of luck but i think that it was uh, part of it was meant to be this is i've been working with michael now for 5 years and so 5 i guess it was now 6 years ago now when we first met i basically i was working at a place called arcola country club which right now is relevant cuz it's it's the golf course right next door to ridgewood where they're playing the um where they're playing the northern trust this week and at arcola one of the assistants a guy by the name of jeff martins was um, he also went to Coastal Carolina. And so I was working with Jeff, and Jeff was uh, was kind of showing me around the area. I'm I'm in now upstate New Jersey. I'm from upstate New York. I went to college in South Carolina. I don't really know anybody. I don't know how to get around. Jeff is, is there kind of showing me around, introducing me to people, taking me to golf courses to play. He's taking great care of me. And I had, by the way, at that internship for me was one of the best, golf jobs you could ever have. And just real quick before uh I finish this story, I I had a schedule where I would work ten to six. I would work ten to six every day except on the um I had Monday off and on Sunday I would work nine to five. So if I wanted to go home somewhere, I I got out a little bit early. It was it was as good as it gets. So I would get up at I would go to the range at seven o'clock in the morning, I'd hit balls, um, until 10 when I'd work and I basically just kind of hung out in a shop all day and uh, quote unquote learned. And when I got done, I got out on the golf course and I played until dark. It was the best job he could have. But um, my, what I basically told Jeff is I I want to get into teaching and teaching is really where I want to go. But at Arcola, the, the junior program was, was fairly small. So I had a little bit of experience with that, but it wasn't a big, a really big thing. So I would spend a lot of time in the shop and I got in trouble for this. I'm watching videos of tour pros on the computer. I'm sitting there on the cuz the other thing is the members don't have to go into the shop there to go out and play. So everyone that shows up doesn't have to go in and see you. They can just kind of go see the caddy master and and head out on the course unless they want to buy something. So as the intern watching the shop, I had a lot of free time even on a busy day. I'm just watching videos of Adam Scott or Tiger Woods, who know, you name it, I've seen it, and, and I'm just watching their videos. And so one day, Jeff brings me to a place called Manhattan Woods, and he's gonna, we're going to play with another Coastal grad by the name of Joe Condomitti. And Joe was, at the time, working for Michael as his uh, assistant. So we play, and Joe's asking me what I want to do, blah, 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 and, and Jeff's kind of telling him, yeah, the kid just wants to teach. And at the end of the round, Joe says to me, "Hey Greg, you know, I, I know you want to get into teaching. I'm leaving at the end of the year. I'm going to I'm going to Round Hill Club, and uh, and Breed's going to need another guy. You should send a resume." I said, "Are you kidding?" "Of course." So I, I send him a resume. He calls me up and says, "Hey, let's. Uh, why don't you come to Manhattan Woods for an interview at this time on this day?" and i i meet there i dress up in a suit and tie go down to this interview and i'll never forget the interview i was it was first of all a very different interview experience than anything that um that i've ever had anything that i was ever told that an interview was supposed to be like this was not a typical kind of where do you see yourself in 10 years kind of questions these were personal deep questions and the take from it was he wants to know what kind of person i am not what kind of golf pro I am, Cause, which is wise on his part. Cause he knows that, Hey, I'm just an intern. I don't know. I don't know anything. I'm basically getting this job to learn more. So I'm in this suit and tie and Michael is asking me questions and he's hitting some balls. I'm sitting in a, a rocking chair out on the range and the sun is right in my eyes He's hitting right into the sun and I'm just staring into the sun. I can't, I can't really see. So I'm answering these questions and I have tears rolling down my face because of the sunlight. I'm trying to block it out. Anyway, I get through it and I was all, I was nervous because I, I thought, man, you know, I, I'm squinting. He probably, he's wondering, he's probably wondering what's wrong with me. I I can't see. I'm crying. <laughs> it, it was a, a mess. <laughs> but he calls me a couple of weeks later, says, Hey, Greg, um, if you want the job's yours. And here we are today, five years later, and i I have the great fortune of of being involved in his radio show a new breed of golf um get to talk about golf every morning get to basically the the hard work that I get to do when i I go in i gotta do my my research i gotta do my homework i'm I'm researching tour pros and statistics and all everything everything you can imagine in in the world of golf and and then I get to talk about it on the air. Uh, and then I get to go help help um help my students improve their game. So it, it couldn't be better.
1: Hey, Greg, like I mentioned at the top of the show, I listen to you and Michael every morning on my way to work and, and I love the show. And the best part of of the show to me, not only is just the golf knowledge and that sort of thing, but it's it's how upbeat and positive you guys are. So much of what we hear on yep. sports talk radio is ranting and raving and yelling and I love that you guys are not that. And we try to do that as well here on this show, plus I do a show on the football side, Thursday Night Tailgate, and, and we, you know, we we try to do the same thing there. We don't try to rant and rave and talk about all the negative things that happen. We we do a spotlight on the positive segment, so we we try to be positive as well. And I, and I think that's such a, a huge credit to the two of you for keeping it that way, talk about why that's so important to both you and Michael.
3: Well, it, you know, basically, that we are we're two coaches, and and that's basically our our um, that's that's where what our our bloodline is. That's where we come from. And when you're a coach, the the negative things aren't really going to do you any good. And a lot of this, for and for me personally, um, Michael aside on this, he, this comes from my mother, my, and my mother is a is a, a woman who. Believe that your with your mind you can control anything and and basically what what you ask for you receive. So if you are out there saying, well, you know, this is going to be a terrible day. I I this this part of my day is is going to stink. I I don't want to do this. I don't I don't want to do this. It, well, it's going to turn out being a, a really bad day. And whatever it is that you have to do that day is not going to end up being uh, a very positive experience. But if you go into the day and you say, you know, for instance, I got to do. I got to do laundry today. If you go into laundry saying, this is going to stink. I hate doing laundry. I can't believe I have to fold this. And then when you're doing it, it's going to stink. But if you go in there and you say, listen, I'm going to have the cleanest clothes and my cl- I'm going to smell so good tomorrow. I'm going to smell better than anybody else the next day. And I can't wait to have my new, fresh, soft sheets to sleep in tonight. And if you get excited about that, well, it's going to change your entire experience. It's going to change the the way that you look at it, possi- quite possibly your entire day, and definitely the one moment when you're when you're doing the the task that it is you don't want to do. So there, and in golf it's the same way. So when you're when you're coaching golf, if you say, for instance, I'll give you a, a, a little story here. Mo- most students when they come in and and they work on a new technique or a new move in their swing, they say, well, you know, that feels weird, and we don't let our students say that's weird because Weird is really, it's a bad word. You won't, if you you say, hey, try this new food, it's really weird. Um, You've never had it before. It's really weird, but you'll like it. Well, you're not going to want to try that. I don't want to try anything weird. But if you say, hey, I got this great new uh, pasta sauce you can try. It's really different. You've never tasted anything like it. Try it. You're going to say, oh, okay, I'll try something different. Different is good, but weird is bad. So they really mean the same. It's kind of the same thing. It's, But what we tell our students is, hey, listen, it, you're here for different. And if you're doing the same thing, if what you're doing is not different, well, then it's not better. And the line is that we, we use this all. The, I use this with almost every first-time student that I ever have. And it, it's, well, better isn't – well, different isn't always better. Better is always different because the same can't be better. So by definition, if it's different, well, it's got a chance – it's at least got a chance to be better. And if you're taking a lesson, you're trying to get better, well, doing the same thing just isn't going to work. It's, it's not going to get anything done. So you basically – you take a, a sentiment like doing something different, and you can look at it one of two ways. One, it's different, which means it's going to be – has a chance to be better. The other way to look at it is, hey, this is weird. And if you look at it as weird – and you don't want to do it and you don't want any part of it and it's not going to be successful and you're not going to try weird. And certainly when that student leaves the lesson tee and they go to practice on their own, if they think of that it, with the perspective in their mind of, hey, this is weird. Well, they're they're not going to do it anymore. They're going to go right back to their old way. They are going to have wasted money and I am not going to have made that student better. I, I now I, I haven't helped them which is the whole purpose of doing what I do is to help people. So the the perspective in my profession and Michael's profession um, is incredibly important, incredibly important. Um, and to focus on the negatives, in my opinion, is just, a, it's a, simply a waste of time and focusing on the positives is something that can um, uplift your day. It can change your day and the, those around you it can change their day too.
1: That's great stuff. Couldn't agree more, Greg. Just a couple more before we let you go. And one of the topics that you and Michael have been talking about over the last several days is the idea that tour players should get paid even if they don't make the cut. And I know Michael's big on figuring out a way, how can we divvy up this purse so the guys get paid for the time that they're spending in the pro-ams or in the clinics that they might put on, help to put on prior to the tournament. And they're entertaining the crowd at least for Thursday and Friday, if they don't happen to make the cut, give me your thought. What are your thoughts on that topic
3: well i you know there there are certain things on the show that you'll hear that I don't necessarily always a, agree with Michael, and sometimes I can express that on the show, and there are sometimes where I may not have a, a real case in my mind. It doesn't feel right, but I don't know exactly why i I may disagree but this so the moral of the story here is we're not always it's not a hundred percent that we the two of us are are in the same line of thinking there are times where we disagree but this is one of those cases where i couldn't agree more and and honestly we were talking about doing a great debate on it and he said well the can you take the other side and i said michael i don't think i can i can't find a reason why these guys are not getting paid to me it's it's um it's very unfair um and and they're basically going out there and they're they're entertaining people, players for two two rounds. They're playing for two rounds. And on Thursday and on Friday, you basically have, well, you have a full field, right? So that's one thing. So you, because they're in the field, they've extended the day of viewing golf. And that means that there's more concession sales. That means there's probably more ticket sales. Some people on a Thursday might only be able to make it for the afternoon or for the morning. And if you cut the field and if you had no cut, for instance, and the field was instead of being 140 players, it was only 70 players. Well, now that day is cut in half and certain people aren't going to be able to go watch. So all of the sales that happen in the PGA tour are, are now limited and those players contribute to that. Now, here's the other thing to me, that's such a big thing. It, it's the thing, the, the, uh, con, the, how do I say this? The, the people that disagree, the, the biggest one that I've heard is, hey, you know, I'm a salesman and I work for a commission. Or what about a salesman who works on commission? What about a, a car dealer who, who works solely on commission? And if they don't make the sale, if they don't succeed, then they don't make any money. And my answer to that is, first of all, if you are one of the 200 or so players that has a PGA Tour card, you've made it. You've succeeded. You, you have, you've made the sale. And the sale for the PGA Tour is made before Friday afternoon. The PGA Tour is selling the product, which you are contributing to as a player in the field. They have already sold that product. And without you, there's no product. There's nothing that they can sell. So to me, those guys that are out there playing, have their their work has already been sold. And somebody has already made money on it, and they continue to make more money on it. And for them to get no part of that, even though they're putting in two days of work, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And I think if you, um, I think there are a number of ways you could pay these guys. And I'm not saying they need to make, you know, $10,000 every week they're out there. I'm not saying that they need to get a, uh, when they get their PGA Tour card, I don't think that they need to get a, a certain amount of, of money, like, say, the NFL. I don't think they need to get a, a minimum contract. But I do think that when they go out there and play, that's, entertainment. That's work that they've done. And I think that they're deserving. I think that they're, uh, that, that they have earned themselves, um, at at least something to the point where they're not losing money on expenses. And the, the other point that everyone makes is, Hey, well, they're getting paid by the sponsors. Their club sponsors are paying them, um, every week that they go out there and play. And that's true. But the reason for that is the club sponsors, the the clubs. let's say Titleist has a guy out there. Well, Titleist is, is getting, um they they're making money on the PGA tour players they're um using their products and when titleist can say hey we have 180 players uh on the PGA tour playing our golf ball or how, however many it is i just made completely made that number up but we have this number of players playing our golf ball well that's good for their business and so they because of that they pay those guys and when the PGA Tour has these guys out there playing, well, that's good for their business. And I think that those players should be compensated. And I think there's a really I think there are a num there are so many ways you could do it. It's not even worth discussing really the way. I, I don't think that it's a, a redistribution. I don't think that you take the purse and you make everybody in the purse give up three percent of their purse for the guys that missed the cut. That's not really what I think. But I think you could um, I, I think you could take a portion of concession sales. I think you could take a portion of um, of beer sales, right, liquor sales. If, if you buy a beer, a dollar of it's going to go to a guy who doesn't make the cut or to that purse of guys that don't make the cut. I also think that there's a potential for the PGA Tour to have a really big revenue stream coming in, a new one. Um, aside from the Discovery deal where they just made $2 billion for their product, um, which includes those players that missed the cut, I think that the gambling thing is going to uh, potentially bring a big revenue stream to the PGA Tour. And if that brings a revenue stream to the PGA Tour, I think they could take a portion of that and pay these guys that are uh, out there competing to make a cut and out there entertaining fans and out there improving the experience of the PGA Tour.
1: Greg, like I say, just uh, one more here before we let you go. And, and I think it was, if I if, if I saw the date correctly, last year, mid-year, you you were sort of on your own on the show. I think it was the first time you subbed for Michael. Um, what was that like? What was it like kind of heading into, all right, Greg, it's your show today, my friend. Good luck hey you. Yep,
3: absolutely. Well, so I, it was actually, um, believe it or not, two years ago, back when the show was one hour for three days a week. Uh, I, that, that's when I filled in for the very first time. And it was in the middle of the, in the middle of the, um, in the middle of the season. And Michael had a, a shoot to do at Ferry Point. And at that time, we, Michael didn't have a studio up and running and, and we would do our, our show again, it was nine to 10. So we could get, we had more time to get everything prepared. Now being eight to 10, the, the setup time, the amount of time that it takes to get ready for a two hour show versus a one hour show is a little bit different. So at that time when it was one hour we were able to just do it at the academy. And our preparation was basically we would go out, we would take balls on the range, and a half hour before the show started, we'd go in, set up and and talk about what we talked about. So back in that in those days, Michael traveled with uh with the radio. The all of the stuff he had a uh, carry case which we still have, but now it it's pretty much stationary. And he would bring it down to the Academy and we'd set it up. And cause one day a week he would do it at his house on Tuesdays. He wasn't teaching on Tuesdays. So anyway, this this one day was happened to be a Wednesday and he was going to bring it down and he was going to be doing a shoot out on the range, uh, with a, with a, um, for basically for this DVD thing that he did. And so he's going to bring it down. I'm going to get everything set up. I was down there and, and I was going to do the show from, from our Academy like we always did. It was just going to be me. And I was prepared. I was nerve. I was a little nervous. I was excited. I was prepared. Well, Michael gets there. And when, when he gets there, he starts talking to me about some of the keys, right. And he's, uh, the way that he is, he's talking fast. He's very excited. He's got a lot to do. He, it, this isn't just about me going on and doing a show. He's got to also prepare for the shoot. So he's kind of going over these things really fast. And all of a sudden he just looks at me with a blank stare. Mid sentence, he just stops and he goes, "I forgot the radio." Back at his house, it was all—it was um, all the way back in in Connecticut, and we're in the Bronx, New York. It, it was probably it's probably twenty minutes away, but now all of a sudden it's eight o'clock in the morning, and I got to go from New York to Connecticut at eight o'clock in the morning to do my first show now at his house alone, and it's a little tight for time. So he is Michael is in a, a panic. And the whole time I'm saying to myself, just go be calm. I would say, I'll get, I'll make it. I'll make it. Don't worry. We're going to be okay. But I got in the car and I was driving and now I'm finally by myself and I was trying to be calm and I wasn't so calm anymore. I was very, I I was really (laughs) nervous. Am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? And I get there 15 minutes before the show. um, And, and Michael's wife, Carrie, (laughs) Bless her heart, was able to get everything set up for me before I got there. So I basically got there, put the headset on. I had 15 minutes to talk with our producer about what we were going to talk about, and the feeling I had was probably a feeling that you wouldn't expect. It was a very interesting feeling. I'll never, I'll, I will never forget this. And when I, whenever I tell people this, they're so surprised because you would think that, wow, there are so many people listening. I, I'm so nervous. What, what is everybody going to think of me? But when I put the headset on, it's silent and there's no noise. And the feeling I got was like, hello, is is any is there anybody there? Is anybody listening to me? And it was a very, very kind of surreal feeling because when you're talking on there and you're doing your intro and there's not a phone call coming in, the producers aren't talking in your ear. They're letting you go. Those moments in between, you know, when you're trying to find your words and you're thinking about what it is that you're gonna say, um, there's moments of silence. And it it was just a very interesting feeling. I, I'm sure there were a number of people listening. I'm sure far fewer than if, if Michael was doing the show. I'm sure most people just uh changed the channel but at, at that point when they when they heard that it was me. But um but it was a very, very interesting sort of feeling of of um loneliness, which I, I'm sure is not what you would expect, right, Chris?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, to be honest with you Greg, I I do I do understand it because you know, it's just me here on the show, right? right. So there's there's no one to bounce anything off of if there's no you. Right? So right. now it's just you and your thoughts and then the, yeah, it can be a very lonely feeling, very isolating because now yeah. am I going down the road here? Yeah, that two that two yeah. or three seconds of silence seems like forever. Right. Yep. So then it's, couldn't it, agree more. Yeah, it's a very lonely feeling. I absolutely understand what you're saying. Yeah. Well, Greg, so
3: I think over I can't the, thank you no. enough
1: for your time tonight. Let our listeners know how can they follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media. So
3: on social media, you can get me on Twitter I'm at the real GFD. No confusion. It, it, it's the real GFD. So there's no um, you know, it's, it's not an imposter. It's really me. I promise you. Um, so, so that's how you can get me on Twitter. And then um, if, if you were to say, take a, you know, you want a little bio on me, you want to, if you were interested in coming and taking a lesson with me, you could go to michaelbreed.com and in the Academy section there, I have a, a profile there. And of course, what you can always do is tune into the show uh, on Sirius XM every, every morning, Monday through Friday from eight to 10. And that's Sirius, uh, Sirius 208 and XM 92. It's on PGA Tour Radio. It's a uh, it's a great positive listen. You know Michael's running the show and I, I help him out as much as I can back there. Um, and through that show, you can call into the show, uh, which that's a number that I don't need to say now, but we we say it all the time on on the air. You can call in. We get every all the listeners get involved, um, and and everyone can weigh in on their ideas. And you can also send an email to a new breed of golf, which is the name of the show, at michaelbreed.com, and both Michael and I get to check that email and, uh, and, and read your input and all your thoughts.
1: Well Greg, thank you so much again for taking time out of your night to be a part of our show. And I want to give a shout out to our mutual good friend Brian Jacobs for getting us together so that we could have you on the show. Brians a fantastic Absolutely. friend and a great instructor in his own, right? So thank you, yes, to Brian. So, Greg, take um, care. All the best to you and your family. Hopefully we get the opportunity to have you come back on the show again real soon because it's been a lot of fun spending time. you got dozens of other questions I'd love to get you to weigh in on. So I hope you'll come back and join me sometime.
3: Hey, you let me know anytime you need me. I'm always here, happy to help, and uh, what an honor to be a part of your 200th show. So congratulations on that.
1: I hope, I hope to talk to you again soon. All right, Greg. Thank you very much. Take care. All the best to you, Thanks, to your family, and to Michael. Look forward to having you back on. Okay. Okay. Talk to you soon. Have a good night. Thanks, Greg. That is Greg Ducharme, and again, uh, he you can hear him every morning on the Michael Breed Show, A New Breed of Golf. He's fantastic on there, and uh, you know, what what a great uh, you know rise he's had up through the the golf ranks. So can, congratulations to Greg, and uh, and I can't thank him enough for taking time out of his night to be a part of the show. It's uh, it's hopefully he's a guy that uh, we get to say years from now has been on many many times, like Mark Wiebe has. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the T. My thanks again to both of those guys, Mark Weavey, Greg Duchamp, for joining me. Please give me your thoughts. Check out our page on Facebook, Next on the T with Chris Mascaro. Give me your feedback there. Plus, if you've got a question for Greg or Mark or any of our future guests or guys that have been on the show with us or gals that have been on the show with us before, please send them to us through with our Facebook page. We'll be glad to get those questions answered for you. You can find this show online, our website, NextontheTee.net. On there, you're going to be able to link to any of our archive shows, plus you'll be able to see who some of our future guests are going to be as well. Please also check out our sister show on the football side, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host Bob Lazari and our announcer Joe Lajanusa. That show airs live every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern time. You can stream it live on Blog Talk Radio, and that show like this one also available as a free podcast on iHeartRadio and on Podbean. On Thursday night, Tailgate, we're joined every week by five NFL legends who share their stories from their playing days, plus give us insights into what's going on around the league today. Plus, like I mentioned with Greg, we do a Spotlight on the Positive segment where we highlight two players who are doing great things in their communities. You can find that show online at ThursdayNightTailgate.com, and again, this one next on the T.net. Folks, thanks again for choosing to listen to this show tonight. We really appreciate it. Until next week. Him straight, my friends.
2: You've been listening to Next on the T with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA pros and top instructors and media members go to tell their stories. Join us the same time every Tuesday to hear more stories about the game we love from people sharing those stories with you it's all about the great game of golf it's all about the great game of golf